Welcome to a new episode of Whiplash Agile, where we focus on the failures that are necessary to be successful on an agile journey, because there are always valuable lessons to be learned from someone else's struggles and stumbles. I'm Jeff Anderson, your host and CEO of Agile by Design. So welcome everybody to the next episode of Whiplash Agile. I'm really happy to have Gil Broza with me. For those of you that don't know Gil, how do I introduce Gil? So let me think. Uh, leadership trainer, leadership coach, um, deep technology coach, master of a variety of different practices, mindsets, um, author of The Human Side of Agile, The Agile Mindset, and the last uh, and, and latest uh, piece of work, uh, Deliver Better Results. So Gil, welcome, welcome aboard. I'm super excited to have you here. I've been looking forward to this all day. Amazing. So, Gil, um, I want to I want to actually start with your latest work because it's uh, you know when I first read it, I, was, I I have to admit at first I was like not another improvement model. There's a million of these out there, um, and I started digging in and I and I saw some stuff that I was like you know I hadn't thought of it like that before or. I hadn't articulated it that way before. You know, like the real truths are things you're kind of doing, but you just don't articulate it well. And so there's a bunch of those in there, mm -hmm. which I, I want to dig into. Before I do that, what led you to write this book and why now? I've been in the space over 20 years. I mean, I've been in software 30. I've been in the agile space over 20 and, you know, coaching, training and all that. And what I find is that leaders still need some roadmap for making their product development better. Like you said, you know, there, there are other improvement models out there, but most of them, they tend to be of the kind of, here's the target state, now just go and implement it. Or look for your biggest offender, fix that. Maybe it's eliminate waste, maybe it's theory of constraints, but basically fix problems. And I wanted something different. I wanted something that enabled leaders to say, all right, we are doing this well, and therefore we need to do X and Y to get to the next level. So it's about generally making things healthier and more fit for purpose. We we'll talk about that as opposed to plugging holes. At the same time, this is for technology organizations. And so I don't want to pretend that I don't know what improvement looks like. I don't want to prescribe it, but I definitely want to give recommendations that make sense in context. So not just say, hey, do servant leadership. That will fix things. That's too vague. It's too general. Hence the book. Well, if, if I if interject, um, on one end of the spectrum, you have these cookie-cutter frameworks that say, just do this and life will be grand. And the other end, you have these very open sort of agnostic improvement frameworks that just leave a lot of the experience and things that people have learned to, re, to be relearned in a sense. And so I like the way you've taken this book and you've kind of hit a happy medium, which is, and I like the idea of health. So you're getting healthier. And by the way, we know how to get people healthier. It's always going to be different, but there's some common steps. There's some common steps an organization can take. And so is that is that what you're trying to do is, is have an open path for folks that, that still respects their unique context? Yes. Yes. All my work has always been you know, respecting context. So I, I do not give people, you know, pre-chewed frameworks. Uh, I don't tell them this is good for you, do it. The idea is you're in charge of your destiny. You need to live with the results of your actions. What can I recommend to you that you can take and run with and just use in order to make things better for yourself? Can we go ahead and, and um, do the spoiler alert and tell our listeners that they're actually getting a piece of the book? Yes, I'm sorry. You you did ask me to bring that up, and uh, in my excitement, <laughs> I actually forgot. So let's talk about that—the fact okay. that you're giving away the, the first chapter of your book. Yes. 
first chapter is not an introduction. It's called the big picture. It covers the key points of the model that we're going to talk about. Uh, it also has a fitness assessment tool that we might be talking about. Uh, so any listener who's interested, you can go ahead and get this to recall the conversation afterwards and to build a shared mental model with your colleagues. Uh, the URL for this is uh, heardonpodcast.deliverbetterresultsbook.com. Perfect. And we'll make sure to share that in the, in the notes as well. So that's an excellent jumping off point to ask you about the school model, which is a model of improvement that you introduce. What, if you were to elevator pitch the square model to people listening, what would that what would that pitch be? Or how would you explain that to people who've never heard of square before? Okay, so square is an acronym. It's an acronym for, you know, simple and qualitative and relative. The idea being that what you want to improve is not just one thing. You want to improve the system overall, the system of getting work done. And more specifically, what you want to improve there is its fitness for purpose. How well does it help the company do what it needs to do and achieve its mission, achieve its objective? The model says that we can see if fitness is made up of six aspects. They are not dimensions. Uh, we might talk about them later. But those aspects are basically the results of the system's performance. For instance, how well does it solve user problems? How timely are its deliveries? How consistent is it? Those are just three examples. And by knowing how close or not, in many cases not, uh, those are at the current state from their optimum in your context, we can assess kind of where things are. And then there are overall 10 strategies, which are sequential and incremental, based on what you know level you assessed. There's maybe two or three at the time that you need to employ, kind of get good at, kind of bake them in, make them part of normal life. And that will just automatically take you to the next level. And so you kind of go between the levels by doing these things. Um, we, we talked about health as an analogy. Sometimes we use, we need to be healthy if we want to do, let's say, run long distances or climb a mountain or volunteers, firefighters. We don't get there just by declaring it and we don't get there just by wanting to. We get there gradually. This is a gradual path. I really like the idea of these um, sort of five levels, so to speak, and the kind of the 10 strategies, so to speak. I won't, I won't do it justice if I if I try to share it. I'd love it if you could share a little bit more about it. And, and you know, because some of them, the way you've ordered them are, is really interesting. And I want to dig into that for a bit. But first, maybe share what these five strategies are and, and how that, sorry, these 10 strategies and these five levels. Right. So let's talk about the levels first. The levels are what I have observed Uh both from my work with lots of clients, but also with my studies and, and just being connected with you know hundreds of people and having spoken with so many leaders, the levels indicate what those companies go through, specifically their systems of value delivery, as they improve. So it's not a theory of, well, at level three, you should be this good, and at level four, you should be that good. It's like what happens sort of on a natural basis. Level one, Level one, you know, people have some successes, but overall, the system just can't do what the company needed, needs it to do. And people feel like they can't succeed. Level two, it's okay now, the system helps the company achieve its objectives, but it's not efficient enough. It is not efficient and not effective enough. Level three, it's doing better, the results are satisfactory. But if you look inside, it's really all hanging on a few people who make all the big decisions. And uh, and system is really optimized for just one thing. That's what we often see in um, you know Scrum and Kanban implementations that people have you know they they've improved them, but they kind of got into a rut and and they've really optimized them for one thing. So if big changes come in, uh, there's going to be mayhem. Level four, it's effective, it's efficient, but it's it's not great yet at doing big things. 
like you need to update an aging platform, or there's just been an acquisition and you need to integrate it, or you're growing super fast and because you're trying to accomplish something. So level four, they're not there yet when it comes to that. And level five is like, it's all great. So the strategies basically take us between those levels. And they're really based on, again, not theory, but what seems to work in organizations that do, in fact, level up successfully. For instance, at level one, one of the things to do is to get your project portfolio, roadmap, if that's what you call it, under control. Manage it strategically, manage it to capacity. I mean, this is not a new suggestion, right? If you've read any of uh, Johanna Rotman's work, and I'm sure you've done this yourself, it, it's all there. It's almost, you know, naively so is what a lot of agilists try to do, but it just becomes, it's, it's sort of naively implemented. Well, there's that too, but a lot of agile practitioners, they try to solve things at the team level, whereas getting your portfolio in order happens upstream from the team. It's really a management thing. But this is one of the two strategies that you need to execute to get out of level one, and you need to keep managing your portfolio as fitness improves. In fact, it is a prerequisite for everything else. You're not going to get fitness for purpose if if you're kind of half-assing your portfolio management. Why? Because more stuff will come in. Again, call it roadmap. doesn't matter. But more big things will come in, displace others. Before you know it, everybody's, you know, headless chickens, to- tons of escalations, reprioritization all the time. Nobody's happy. And we're in a system, right? That's a reinforcing loop. Right. Absolutely. I found it really interesting that your earlier strategies were more about, you know, getting the system under control and then later on sort of I'm not going to get it in the exact right order, so please correct me. But later on, you started talking about you know increasing uh, people's decision-making abilities, increasing collaboration and autonomy, safety, all kind of later on. And rather rather than starting immediately with those things, I thought that was maybe I, I thought I was just doing that because I'm more comfortable with those earlier things and the later things. And you, you talk, you, you know, it's like I can I can say psychological safety, but if you want me to go facilitate a workshop, I'm going to run for the hills. But maybe there's some science behind what I was doing as well. So I was wondering if you could explain your thinking behind. And that is it's really interesting. So the strategies are really again based on a dependency sequence. Meaning what? Meaning that you can only execute a specific one if other components are in, in place first. For instance, at level three, one of the first things to do is to improve teamwork. Now you might ask, well, teamwork's a good thing. Why don't we do it from the get-go? And we try, we put people in teams, we give them leaders, right? What's happening? What's happening is that while you can definitely try that and you might be successful, as a way to improve things, teamwork at level one is not going to be the panacea. The panacea is going to be that you don't overburden your teams and that you structure them uh, appropriately and, and some of the other things. At the same time, there's also the readiness. And what I find is that systems at levels one and two are usually still scrambling to make ends meet, being a team feels a bit like a distraction. Now, you will have people say, of course we should be a team, and, and you know it's not an unfamiliar concept, but in terms of actually making it happen, not just referring to people as a team or a pod or a squad or whatever the word of day is, but actually having them act that way, they're not, yeah, they're not ready for it. And the entire system is not ready for it in terms of safety and incentives and boundaries. They're just not, not there yet. I feel like you've hit a kind of Maltus's um, hierarchy of needs, but you've done it for organizations. So, you know, like... Maybe. But stop overeating. And once you, you stop overeating, then you can start feeling, uh, taking some time to get into some of the more deeper cultural aspects, you know, but do it, don't do it in a state of panic. Do it when things have calmed down a bit. Anyway, that was my, what I took away from your, what I was reading, you know. It's a really interesting analogy for me because while I was writing the book, um, I've also been... 
um, taking a program for some, you know, for getting better health and some weight loss. And it is so different from everything out there in the same way that my model is not like any of the improvement models out there. That one is also very systemic, you know, calm things down. And then you will see some of the benefits, very much a, uh, you know, a compounding change type of thing. Um, very much a system thinking approach, even though, you know, the host doesn't use that term because she'll scare everybody away. But the idea is that, yeah, you, you want to take care of the whole thing. Rome was not built in a day, so don't try. And put things in a certain sequence, because if you don't, you're just going to be wasting time and goodwill. For instance, let's talk about this, uh, you know, safety, teamwork, collaboration and whatnot. You know, I, I've been, this is something that's been super important to me forever. I mean, I wrote The Human Side of Agile. It talks all about that, right? Clients I've had, it's something I've always brought to them and it's one of the special things I can do for them. Fine. But it didn't always stick at the beginning. And it didn't stick at the beginning because we had other problems to fix first. And, the, and that's what this model reveals. It's really based on, oh, some things were done prematurely. It's like teaching people how to do TDD and refactor. Yes, I mean, that sounds like, you know, a net positive, but why doesn't it stick? It doesn't stick because they still need to deal with the present, not so much deal with future cost of change. And so you need to have gotten, you know, a few levels up before paying down your technical debt and not creating new is, is even viable. Right. Some of these things uh, take a lot of um, bravery and sort of, um, I'm not, bravery is my name, the wrong word, but resiliency to the pressures of the outside world. And if you haven't created a system that's naturally resilient, then people, you can give them all the practices they want and they just revert back to the way thing, the next emergency comes along and they're back to the way they've been doing things, you know? So it's, it's, it's quite a uh, Yes. And so when you're at like a lay of level three or four, um, you're better equipped to deal with emergencies because they will happen, right? That's right. But also, in addition to the resilience, it's also some sort of mental readiness. It's it's the sort of thing of, you know, why don't people save for their retirement? Well, because they can't make ends meet now. So they're not going to worry about what's in 20, 30, 40 years. But it's a good thing. You should do it. Please do it. We'll give you all the tools and techniques, but you don't have the money to do it with. Right. It's like giving someone a spreadsheet when they're broke. Yes. So the idea is to sequence out the efforts so that we can actually get to where we want in a sustainable way. That's the big idea. And so, for instance, you don't have to execute all those 10 strategies. If you do and you do it in the right sequence, you will make level five. It will take you probably a couple of years easy, right? Depending on the size and context and whatnot. But it's perfectly fine to say, well, no, we've assessed ourselves. You know, we use this tool. It took 10 minutes. We Okay, we're at level two. Okay, let's just try to get to level three. That will already be huge. Okay. And if if you follow the advice that's written in the book and, and you know, you, you do what's in level two, but actually first you make sure that your level one things are solidly in place. You didn't just half-ass them. Then it might be just a couple of months and you're at level three. And it's it won't come because, oh, you know, we, we've beaten ourselves to death over definition of done or a user story template or things like that, which are actually totally secondary to the whole thing. Right. Absolutely. You've mentioned um, you know different ways of um, assessing fitness, and I'm I'm pretty sure you're going to say it's it's unique to context. But you have some interesting ways that organizations can measure fitness, and I was wondering if you could walk through some of that because I, I I find um, and you know what, and especially what I found really compelling about it was the fact that you emphasized qual qualitative and relative, right, as opposed to getting obsessed yes. with any specific numbers. And that, and that I found quite interesting and also quite true in, in terms of the way people think. So I wondering if you could share that with, with, the, with the people listening. Yes. Okay. So why, why qualitative and not quantitative? First, what, what does a qualitative assessment get you? First off, it's just easier to wrap your head around. 
Okay, it's just easier to understand. The other thing is, if you do use hard data, let's call it metrics, why not use metrics to assess fitness? I mean, it sounds like it should be useful and it should be a, a component, but what are some of the problems with that? Well, one problem is that nobody actually has a complete set of metrics. You can look at, you know, uh, lead time and you can look at uh, mean time to restore and, and all the door metrics and this and that, but they only paint one part of the picture. You're not looking at how are you solving client problems? How is timeliness from your customer standpoint? And, and a whole bunch of other things that have to do with the overall system that develops something that's supposed to make a difference. Another thing is this. Every time you collect metrics, you affect the system, right? So if you measure cycle time, you measure lead time, you measure escape defects, you measure productivity, however you do that, people will change their behavior to make the metrics come out good, which will already mess you up. Okay, so, so there is that. The other thing is metrics are susceptible to garbage in, garbage out. Okay, so if if unless they're like really perfect and it's been 20 years and the industry hasn't come up with perfect ones, then you're going to get some trouble here. Now, the other thing I would say about metrics is this. Um, even when we do use data to draw conclusions, uh, we still inject our subjectivity. And sometimes we look to compare to like the industry grades. But I don't want you comparing yourself to Google or Facebook if what you're doing is, I don't know, selling insurance, right? You need to look at what matters to you. That's the relative thing. So fitness for purpose is relative to to what you need, your business landscape, uh, your technology situation, your competition, how much regulation you know is on you, and, and all of those things that uh, really affect what optimum would be relevant for you. Can you provide an example of one of the metrics and how you assess that quality? You encourage someone to assess it qualitatively. Yes. So I use, uh, again, six aspects, like we said before. So let's look at one of them, timeliness. Timeliness I define as by the time your uh, customers or users take delivery of your product or solution, how valuable is it to them? Assuming you meant it to be valuable. So the way you assess this is you, you basically follow three prompts. The first one is, okay, what would be optimal for us? What would be an optimum that is both practical and relevant for us. Doesn't matter what the big dogs do, what's us. Then you look at, okay, so how are things right now? You don't need metrics. I, I, I've done this with so many people. They know. They know we're always late. They know we're sometimes late, but you know what? It's not a big deal or, or something of that nature. And the third prompt is, okay, well now, what's the relation between the current state and that optimum? Is one like really far from the other that it's like constantly a problem, comes up in management meetings, people are upset. It's, uh, it's like, it's a real problem. It's hurting us. So we just say that one is far from the other. Uh, if it's not that, we look at the opposite end of the scan. We say, well, are the two actually close enough? Good enough? Between what we're doing and what we want it to be. Exactly. Is our current timeliness pretty much good enough? Okay. We never actually hit the optimum and that's fine, but are we close enough? And th that would make it a near. And if it's neither one of those two, neither far nor near, then we call it midway. So those, it's a scale of three, but those are not thirds. They are totally qualitative, right? They're not thirds. So you, you might even think that... Basically saying, do we feel that we're close to this? Do we feel like we're nowhere close to this? Or do we feel like it's in spitting distance? And you're basically yeah. getting people to say, and how, what do we want to do about that? Or what's the, what's the impediment in the way? And, and, and then assessing again, I guess, as you go. Right. Now, so once you've assessed it as far uh, near or midway, you, you do this for all the sex aspects. There is some totally scary calculation involving the numbers one, two, and three. And then, um, and then you come up with a level. And that's it. And the only reason we do this is because by knowing the level we're on, we know what we need to do now in order to level up. Now, 
I do suggest that people kind of keep track of their ratings, those far near and midway, because then they can see improvement over time. But here's the interesting thing. And this is why this model is so different than everything else out there. You will not be able to manipulate your performance on one of the aspects alone. So you can, for instance, improve your timeliness without creating knock-on effects on everything else. Now, some of those effects, some of those effects might actually be good. Right. But chances are uh, some of them will not be so good. Right. So rather than say you will get to greatness by kind of turning the dial on each of these aspects, the strategies basically lift everything up. Right. Not always equally, but the idea is that if you've lifted up the, the system, you can see improvement on each of those. In some cases, there is no movement, but nothing ever goes back. That's right. Yeah. I, I want to talk a bit about um, systems thinking, but I want to drill down into one particular thing. I think this is another thing that you brought into the community that, at least I know at Agile by Design, we use it in almost every one of our engagements. And it's your way of talking about, it's not all of the system, but the ways of working component of the system. And you have a unique way of describing a way of working that at least helped make a lot of stuff area that to me was very fluffy beforehand, very real and practical. So I was wondering if you could maybe describe some of that and how that plays into this. It's it's linked your past work basically into the into the latest, basically. So yes, exactly. Right. So first off, what what's the scope? So when we say the system, it's usually bigger than the team and smaller than the company, right? It's it's nested in between. And that's like all the people, so ICs and managers, and how they work. So both people and process. But it's not just process, it's the entire way of working. And the way of working is really made up of two elements. One is mindset, and the other one is the tactics. So the mindset is basically how we make choices, what we optimize things for, the worldview that justifies all that, the principles by which we make decisions. And the tactics are how we structure ourselves, the roles we have, the process, the practices, the tool usage, um, all, all the tangible, visible, let's call it mechanical, teachable stuff that we do and how we configure ourselves in order to get work done. So so instead of saying, well, you know, the system kind of vaguely work on it, improve it, you know, that's not practical. It's not useful. So rather than tell people, okay, you, you know what your system is, you know the scope, you know who's included and all of that, now make things better. We need to give a target, right? Something specifically that you can focus your attention on. And what I found useful, and, and yes, this does date back to what I've been doing with clients on Agile, because it's practically the same thing with a specific set of choices, the Agile choices, is you want to update the way of working. But the way of working, again, includes both people and process. It's not just process. Right. Because people use the process and people bring their whole selves to the process and they make choices. And if you execute the same practice with one set of ideas, you get one outcome. And if you execute the same practice with other ideas, you get a different outcome, right? So that, that was like, you know, the big part of my work in, you know, the previous few years in terms of the mindset and its effect on, on outcomes. I actually really, you know, to be honest, when most people in the agile community would talk, oh, it's the mindset, it's the mindset, it's the mindset, my brain would just turn right off and go, I don't know what you're talking about. That's like, um, you know, I can go to yoga too. I'm not really interested. But then, you know, just being strictly honest, when I read your book, uh, you made it very tangible around connecting choices, decisions, beliefs into something, the way you think and the way you do and tying that together, I think is, is really powerful. I think, I don't think... Uh, a lot of other people have done that as effectively as you have. So certainly it's been an inspiration for me and a whole bunch of people that I work with. So it's been super helpful. Yes. And uh, you've said this to me before, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> 
I mean, for anybody who's allergic to the word mindset, think choice making. We make choices all the time in decisions, in engaging people, in prioritization, in what line of code to write. In I'm going to refactor this now or I'm going to call it a day. The choices are everywhere. How do we make them? Not because of a script. We make them because we, we follow some set of guidelines. Those are the principles. For instance, if there's something I'm not quite sure what, how to approach, I'll probably seek somebody to collaborate with. That's a principle. It's not a practice. Well, that's because I, I gravitate to collaboration. I find value in it. It helps me achieve what I usually optimize for, which is you know, quality, value, and whatnot. So that's how everything ties together. Love it. You've talked about incongruence in your book. It's sort of related to the, your sort of mindset and practices. And, and I think that's a, yes. a really powerful thing because we see a lot of incongruence in our job and our work. And maybe you could explain oh, yes. to the audience why, why, what incongruence is and why it's so potentially damaging to the work that we're trying to do. Yes. So incongruence, of course, is a general term, but I, I use it in the context of our way of working. And the incongruence tends to appear in two forms. One is we espouse one mindset, but we act differently. For instance, uh, maybe we are, you know, we show up to team meetings and we do the sprint planning and we talk at the stand up and everything else. So we seem to be doing agile things, but the mindset that we come into this with is very much individualistic, work from a plan, do what you're told. And so this comes out in our actions. It's incongruent because we are. We don't do what we seem to be intending to do or what people expect us from do or what to do or what the system wants us to do. Okay, So that is one very common incongruence where uh, we make a change at one of the levels, either mindset or tactics, um, without making a concomitant change at the other level. Okay, So I can act agile all I want, but if how I actually engage is not agile, that's not going to help me. It's just going to confuse people and not get me any agility. Right. So that's one thing. The other type of incongruence is when people who are in a way codependent, right, to succeed, they need both like a team uh, if they act with different mindsets. So they may be following the same nominal process or practices, but they make different choices. So I had a client like this once where, you know, there were like 10 people on the team, uh, four of them liked pair programming. So they had two pairs and, and that was it. The six others, they would not hear of it. So effectively, what we had there is two subteams. Basically working in a very different style. Of course, and, and you can kind of make it work this way, but, but the effect of the, again, the different choices was that realistically, we're not being a single team, even though show up to the same meetings and work in the same room. I have to say, that's why I, I, I really found your get really deep on teamwork later to be very insightful, because what we see in a lot of, of these sort of 10, 15, even 20 people teams is very little actual teamwork. Lots of stories and, you know, sticky notes and maybe even some technical practices happening. But it's it's the actual teamwork itself is a long sort of, it's a long nut to bear almost. And it takes a long time to start getting that culture of teamwork and getting people to work with each other. So I thought it was quite insightful that you're trying to calm the system down first, get some wins in, in a stable sort of productive environment, then start doing some of the deep work afterwards. It made a lot of sense to me. 
Right. And and part of that, and I mentioned this early in the book in the Leadership Foundation, is because people respond to the system they're in. So you may have 15 people, which is not wrong at all, right? I'm not of the opinion that it's 7 plus minus 2. And it, it kind of should work. But realistically, there are all sorts of pressures and incentives and whatnot in the system that prevents teamwork from materializing. So yes, we do the strategies and that makes us more ready for it. But there are deeper things going on here and we're not going to solve them with more process. We're not going to get to... And, and that's really like the cardinal sin of, of the Agile movement, right? You're not going to create agility or teamwork or customer centricity or all the other Agile goodness by process alone. Not going to happen for two reasons. One, system. Two, humans. Both complex and both will resist any standard process to kind of just improve things in that way. Um, and they trump process. <laughs> and they trump process, absolutely. Yes. In fact, I think, I think process has to come from those things. They're, they're the source of the of the change. But, uh, yeah. you know, you know like most people look at process as... Yeah. Well, most people look at process as the first order artifact and I look at it as, no, it's a transitory thing that happens as a result of the other things that are much more mm -hmm. primary yes. in your system. More. That's all the time we have, but um, that was that was amazing. I think we actually got through most of my questions. You made the joke when you saw them that this would be a three-hour interview if we went, but I think we touched on almost all those the major points. Um, is there anything that you wanted to share with the um, with the audience? Uh, is there something you want to share beyond the first chapter of your book, or even if you just want to remind everybody of that again, like the mic is yours. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love for people to, to to read chapter one because this is you know everything we've talked about today is not common knowledge. I'm not the first person in the universe to come up with this, but it is not common knowledge, right? And it, it is different enough from the standard approach to work that you, you do need to process this further. So I would love it if people went to um, to get, you know, chapter one again, heardonpodcast.deliverbetterresultsbook.com. Um, look, the way I see it... Well, I'll recommend that say you should get the whole book because I went through the whole book and the whole book is worth a read. If you're serious about improving. Uh, I mean, the problem with the agile verse, I'm going to call it right now, is you have the very sort of strict agile procedure or limited kind of knowledge. Then you have this sort of like progressive management consulting sort of domain uh, that throws the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to all the good things that agilists have learned. You kind of tie the two together in a very pragmatic and practical way. So it makes the book unique. So that that's my plug anyway for anybody who's listening. Go read this book. Well, thank you. I mean, this is... You know, unlike my first three books, this is not an Agile-specific book, but it's definitely Agile-friendly in the sense that you can instantiate the model with Agile ideas uh, and, you know, get to really great agility by following the, the suggestions there. But if what you need is actually a bit of a different model, you might call it hybrid, waterfall for all intents and purposes. If that's the right thing for you, I know, it's, I know what we say about waterfall, but it might be useful for one of our listeners you can still get the results that you need by following this and using those ideas. So it doesn't prescribe what your operational model should be, but what changes you make to the model to make it better. Amazing. Well, well Gil, thanks again. Uh, this is a this is a great talk. Uh, uh, we covered off some great some great stuff. Again, everybody, uh, deliver better results. Go get that first chapter and buy the book if you, if you like it. Thanks again for joining me on Whiplash Agile. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. If you want to connect with me, join me on LinkedIn or Twitter slash X. And if you like what you hear, or especially if you don't like what you hear, get in touch with me directly at agilebydesign.com. Yeah.